Dear listener, we hope that you've been enjoying the variety of podcasts that we have on our network. Now is your opportunity to help us by telling us a little more about you. Please visit jcastnetwork.org survey and complete our listener survey so that we can learn more about you and your listening habits. Again, please visit jcastnetwork.org survey. Thanks so much. You are listening to The Stender with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Knopf, please visit mikeknopf.com. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Some of you know that I have, um, at least for a rabbi, somewhat idiosyncratic musical tastes. Uh, on the one hand, uh, probably my favorite band since I was in high school uh, is a band called Nine Inch Nails. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, one of my favorite uh, bands, uh, which is a very different uh, end of the musical spectrum in some ways, uh, is Bruce Springsteen. And I've gone to concerts of both of these bands, uh, and uh, if you have never had a chance to be at either of those kind of concerts, I commend them to you. You're more likely to like 60 years old, you're more likely to be able to go to a Springsteen concert these days than a Nine Inch Nails one because they're not making as much music anymore. Uh, now he's make, uh, the guy who uh, is basically the head of the band is doing like lots of movie scores and stuff like that. Anyway, but uh, you could go to one of these concerts. If you did, you would notice two very different approaches to constructing the musical experience of the evening, especially at the end of the concert. On the one hand, Nine Inch Nails is famous for closing its concerts with its softer songs. In particular, one of its biggest hits is a song called Hurt. And they typically end their concert with this song, which is a very soft and quiet, very intimate kind of song. Sad song, but very intimate and close. And the theory that Trent Reznor, the head of Nine Inch Nails, the leader of Nine Inch Nails, uh, says about why he always closes his concerts with that song is because he likes the idea of ending this emotional experience that he has with the audience on a very intimate and personal uh, resonant note. And on the other hand, if you go to a Springsteen concert, the concerts generally end with a big sort of bang, an explosion of, of emotion and uh, ecstasy and energy. I mean, the concerts are sort of a marathon anyway, but it ends with this tremendous outpouring. It ends on a very high note. And that's also by design. Uh, Springsteen talks about this. He wants, the, uh, he wants the crowd to leave feeling like energized and motivated uh, and, uh, and, and enlivened through the experience of the concert. And I was thinking about those two different approaches to constructing musical experiences with respect to the High Holy Day season. Because in some ways, our tradition, as is often the case with our tradition, which uh, answers the question, would you prefer this or this, and our tradition says yes, we actually end the High Holy Day season with both of those kinds of experiences. On the one hand, we have Shmini Atzeret, we have today, this morning, which concludes the High Holy Day season on a kind of uh, somber, intimate note with Yizkor, a very intimate kind of service. The whole idea of Shemini Atzeret, our rabbis say uh, in, uh, in the Talmud, is uh, that we have this huge celebration of Sukkot, uh, and then at the end of it, God says to us, 
just another few moments longer. I just want to spend a little time more with you, just a, a one last embrace. And so it's this small kind of intimate thing. And yet also, we end the high, high Holy Days with Simchat Torah, this big, exuberant, ecstatic celebration, singing and dancing with the Torah as we conclude a cycle and begin it again. If we were in Israel, this would be even more obvious, the juxtaposition of these two emotions, because Shemini Atzeret and Simchat Torah are observed the same day in Israel, because we add in an additional day of Yantif here in uh, the diaspora. And so you have this dichotomy right in front of your face in Israel on Shemini Atzeret. You go from the somber intimacy of Shemini Atzeret and Yizkor right into the ecstasy and celebration of Simchat Torah. So what is our tradition trying to offer us and invite us to think about by juxtaposing these two emotions and these two holidays in one package at the conclusion of a long high holy day season? To answer that question, I think we need to go back, back to the beginning of the high holy day season. Because I think that the entire trajectory of the High Holy Day season actually uh, symbolizes and mirrors the trajectory of our lives in many ways. So we begin with Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah, even though we usually refer to it as the birthday of the world, it's actually not true. The birthday of the world, according to tradition, occurs in late Elul, about, uh, about five days before Rosh Hashanah. And Rosh Hashanah actually, according to the rabbinic math of how these things worked out, Rosh Hashanah actually commemorates not the birth of the whole world, but the birth of humanity, the creation of the first human beings. Yom Kippur, well, it doesn't technically correspond to a, uh, a, 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 an event like that. It corresponds, according to some rabbinic commentaries, to, uh, to, the sin of the gold, to the forgiving of the sin of the golden calf. But if you think about what Yom Kippur symbolizes, Yom Kippur is about a fresh start to the new year. Letting go of all the things that didn't serve us in the previous year, being forgiven of all the things that we're carrying with us from the previous year, and moving forward with openness and cleanness and lightness into the new year, having full possibility in the new year. Which, which strikes me as saying that Rosh Hashanah is about the birth of all humanity, the birth of the first human beings. Yom Kippur is about the birth or each year the rebirth of each of us as human beings. It's about a new start, being birthed anew into the world. It's like born-again Judaism on Yom Kippur. We're birthed anew into the world, ready to embrace this new year without the baggage of the past. It's as if we are newborn babies on Yom Kippur. Understood that way, Sukkot becomes, comes a lot more clearly into focus. Because Sukkot, coming just a few days after Yom Kippur, is all about intimacy and connection. It's about direct connection with God. The whole idea of the sukkah is that we are directly under the wings of the divine presence, embraced, wrapped up in the shelter of the divine. I think about this as what happens to a newborn child. 
When we're born, we're not just popped out into the world and like other animals, go get your life, take it or leave it, stand on your own two feet, right? What we have as human beings when we are birthed into the world, we have closeness and intimacy, God willing, with our parents, in particular our mother. It's not... uh, it's not a coincidence that the Shekhinah, the, uh, uh, God's indwelling presence, is meant to be God's feminine attribute. And the, the Sukkah is supposed to symbolize the Shekhinah, God's feminine attribute, God's indwelling presence, as if we are on Sukkot. Right after we are born again on Yom Kippur, we are embraced and held for seven days under the wings of this feminine presence, just as when we are born into the world, we are held close, nurtured, closely, not let go of by our parents. That intimacy, that closeness, that nurturing is purposeful. For human beings, it's how we learn to be in the world. For human beings, it's how we learn how to have attachments in the world. It's how we learn that we are cared for and loved. It's how we enable ourselves to eventually live as competent, sensible, responsible, healthy adults. It begins in that early stage. And psychologists talk about how the closeness of the attachment, the consistency of the attachment that we have with our parents, particularly our mothers, but also our fathers, and the health of the relationship in the household and generally, those attachments are what predicts our health as individuals, both our physical and our psychological health, down the line as adults. And so, Sukkot offers us the same thing. As we are birthed through anew into the new year, we are held at first by God. As if to say, I know that you have a new year ahead of you, filled with possibility. You have abandoned the baggage of the past, but now I'm going to hold you and nurture you and guide you so that you can enter into the new year able to fulfill the promise that that new year offers. And so it's why, for example, there's a custom to start building the sukkah right after the new year, right after Yom Kippur, I mean. Why? So that our first action after Yom Kippur is over is to do a mitzvah. It's why for seven days we're confronted with opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to perform mitzvot. There's not only one time where we say the blessing for dwelling in the sukkah. Every time we eat in the sukkah, we say the blessing for dwelling in the sukkah. As if to say, every time we enter into that space, we have the opportunity to be confronted with what God wants us to do in the world, which is good. We take up the lulav and etrog each and every day. We sit embraced by mitzvot, surrounded by Torah for seven days. And then we come to the end of Sukkot and the end of the High Holy Day season. Shmini Atzeret and Simchat Torah. This is a liminal space. Liminal means the space in a doorway, meaning the place between one 
way of being and another way of being, between one space and another space. We, in the trajectory of our lives, go from being held and nurtured and supported and guided by our parents to ultimately being independent people in the world. And for some of us, that is often filled and fraught with conflict, sometimes tragedy, sometimes a lot of pain. There are moments in which this happens biologically, where we as teenagers or late adolescents, early adults, we step out of the house into our own independence. And then there are also times where this happens not by the trajectory of our own lives, but by the trajectory of the way the world works when we say goodbye ultimately to our parents, where we have to let go of the people that have held us and nurtured us and brought us to that point. And so we have Shmini Atzeret. Shmini Atzeret is this space between Sukkot and the rest of the year where we are grappling with the knowledge that we are going to have to leave the sukkah at some point. We are going to have to leave the nest at some point. We're going to have to leave the close embrace of our parents at some point. And are we equipped with what we need to enter out into the world in the way that our parents, and ultimately our parents in heaven who first created us, would want us to do, would want us to be. And so we're confronted with that question which brings us to the solemnity and intimacy of Shmini Yatzeret. We hold that moment. We hold, in some cases, the memory of our parents or others who have been so meaningful to the development of our lives and we remember them, we bring them back and hold on to them as they hold on to us just for a little while longer because we know we need their strength, we need their values, we need their guidance as we leave the nest, as we leave the sukkah and enter into the life of the new year. But then comes something surprising because what does Judaism say is the representation of all God wants of us in our lives and all our parents and grandparents and those who give their values to us of all they want to pass down to us and transmit to us for us to live meaningful and good lives in the future. It's symbolized by Torah, which is why we have Simchat Torah precisely now, precisely at the moment of our solemnity and our sadness at saying goodbye, precisely at the moment where we symbolically leave the sukkah, where we enter into the independence of our own lives. Because we end the Torah, we stop reading the Torah, but then we start it over again. As if to say that those values and that teaching are ever with us. Which means that God, even if we're not dwelling in the sukkah, is always with us. Which means that our parents, our grandparents, our brothers, our sisters, our spouses, our, God forbid, our children, they continue to be with us even as we leave the sukkah. 
Their values are ever-present. So long as we take it on ourselves to encounter them, to embrace them, to confront them, and to live them. And so indeed, Simchat Torah is a celebration. We leave the sukkah in ecstasy, knowing that we are always surrounded by our parents in heaven and our parents. We are always surrounded by their values. We are always enveloped in their love and guided in how we live if we but take hold of it. And so as we gather today for Yizkor, we connect ourselves with the memories of those we loved and lost and the values, more importantly, with which they would want us to live as we take our leave of them. And then tonight and tomorrow we gather again in celebration because we recognize that so long as we continue holding those values close, so long as we continue to hold the Torah close and turn it over and over again, read it over and over again and live it over and over again. We never have to leave the sukkah as they never leave us. May our yizkor be meaningful this morning and may our celebrations this evening and tomorrow be sweet as we carry all of that love with us into the new year. Chag Sameach.